Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from Dubai, I'm Eleni Jokos. I'm in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Back to work, U.S. economy adds more jobs than expected. Share surge, Pfizer soars on hopes for its COVID pill. And cop-out climate protesters take to the streets of Glasgow. It's Friday, let's make a move. A warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us today for another Jobs Friday in America. The U.S. announcing a short time ago that a stronger than expected 531,000 jobs were added to the economy last month. Driven by robust gains in manufacturing as well as the leisure and hospitality sector, the unemployment rate fell to 4.6%. And in another positive sign for workers, wage growth ticked higher as well. U.S. futures holding on to strong gains as investors pour over the numbers. In addition to jobs, markets also monitoring the action in Washington. The U.S. House could vote today on President Biden's long-delayed stimulus bills. And a COVID treatment breakthrough is giving a lift to reopening stocks Details on that just ahead. And then over in Europe, stocks are at records as well. That despite weak Eurozone retail numbers and disappointing factory data from Germany, German COVID cases sitting at all-time highs again as well. So many risks on the horizon. Asia, meantime, lower across the board. Chinese real estate firms were hard hit amid concerns over the health of another property developer, the Kaiser Group. Reports say it may be at risk of a default. So lots to get into today. Let's begin our drivers with a closer look at U.S. jobs. We've got Rana Faroha joining us now. Rana, really good uh, to see you. Um, better than anticipated, but I'm still looking at that overall unemployment rate. What stood out for you there? Well, as you say, more robust jobs numbers than we were expecting. And really, these yeah. numbers are closer to what we saw at the beginning of the year, which is when we really got that first big post-COVID pickup. Um, you know, what this says to me is that the Delta variant is ebbing. More people have been vaccinated. And there is a lot of pent-up demand in the system post-COVID. You know, we've seen that in some negative ways with supply chain shocks, with shortages, with clogging at ports in L.A. and Long Beach. So, you know, there are some problems associated with this, but we need to remember that that underlying recovery is there. People want to spend and people are getting back to work. Yeah, and they're feeling confident to spend. And that's, I guess, one of the most important things. Private payrolls also looking stronger. Wage growth looking good as well. And then you're hearing from, you know, many sectors within the economy saying we need people. We need to hire more people and they're just not enough in the jobs market. That's an interesting line to hear as well. 
Well, it is. And, you know, that, that's always the issue in, in Anglo-American economies, which tend to fire people quickly in downturns and then try and hire them quickly in upturns. There, there are these rocky periods where, you know, you simply can't smooth, smooth over the issues trying to get people back in the labor force, get them retrained. Um, interestingly, there's also been, you know, a number of women that have dropped out of the workforce throughout COVID, having to balance childcare issues. And some of the work that is most needed right now in the caring economy, in the service sector, really requires women. So, um, you know, there's a mismatch there. And I think that you're going to see probably another year or two of some ups and downs in the labor market as those mismatches are, are worked out. Look, as we start to see better than expected numbers, um, you know, every single month, does this mean that the U.S. economy right now is strong enough to warrant a pullback from stimulus? Well, this is this is the big question, right? Um, The Fed had already said even before these numbers that they were going to pull back on their bond buying program. Um, You know, they believe that the markets are strong. Now, whether or not they raise rates, I don't think that's going to happen in the next month or two. Uh, the markets are pricing in at least a couple, if not more, rate hikes in 2022. But I think you're going to need to see several strong jobs reports before that happens. Because remember, the Fed is balancing uh, really on a very uh, tricky needle here. They don't want the market to crash. They don't want to pull the rug out from under things too soon. At the same time, they don't want let they don't want to let inflation get out of hand. And wages have been rising, prices have been rising, energy prices have been rising strongly. And in both Europe and the U.S., I suspect that rising energy prices in a you know what may be a long cold winter are going to be a big topic. Yeah. All right. So um, in terms of the infrastructure bill and the fact that there's been just so much to and fro, there's a big chance today could be the day where you actually see some voting happening. Are you feeling optimistic about this? You know, I I am feeling optimistic. And frankly, it is do or die for Biden. If the party can't get through an infrastructure bill, I mean, the president has himself admitted that this would be a major failure of one of his uh, top goals. All of the wrangling speaks to something that I think uh, overseas viewers sometimes may have a hard time understanding, which is that there's this existential crisis within the Democratic Party right now about what the future should look like. Should America look more like Europe with a really, really robust uh, safety net? Uh, should there be um, socialized medicine? Should there be uh, free childcare, Or should we just be focused on building uh, the minimum of roads and bridges and maybe broadband? And there's a big debate over that right now. All right. So hopefully we get some news on that later today. Thank you so much, Rana. Great to have you on the show. Thank you. All right. Moving on now. And shares of Pfizer are surging pre-markets. They are up some 11 percent after the company presented interim results of a trial of a new anti-COVID drug. The company says the experimental pill greatly reduced the risk of hospitalization and death in high-risk patients. It hopes eventually people will be able to take it at home. Earlier, the Pfizer CEO told CNN this is a game changer. I think it's great days for humanity. In fact, the news are coming a year almost to the day after we announced another breakthrough. November 9th last year, we announced the COVID-19 vaccine and today we are announcing a pill that treats those unfortunately where they get the disease. It is significant. That means that instead of having among this group of people 10 going to hospital, only one will go. And uh, likely very few, if any, will die. So the introduction of this pill will save millions and millions of lives. 
Where does this fit in the battle against COVID? Obviously, you still want people to get vaccinated. People need to get vaccinated. Vaccinations are hugely important. But what does this pill then do help? What does it do to help change the pandemic? There are no words that I can use to emphasize how important is the use of vaccines. Without being current with our vaccination, including the boosters, vaccinating all the ages, we will never be able to get rid of this virus. But of course, vaccines are not effective 100% and not everybody are getting the vaccines. So this is why we are have this unfortunate situation that our ICUs in hospitals is overcrowded by unfortunate people that they are getting the COVID. Now we have a solution for that. And this is exactly where it fits. This is not to prevent at this stage COVID. This is to treat those that unfortunately got the disease. Yeah, once you get it, this can really help you. Exactly. Adverse effects. Your news release on this, which I had a chance to read through quickly, did note there were some adverse effects for some people who took it. What were they? In fact, that's the amazing thing. The people who took the medicine had way less adverse events than the people that took the placebo. In fact, in terms of serious adverse events, we had uh, 1.7% of the people that took the medicine had these events compared to 6% of people that they took the placebo. So the adverse events are clearly caused also because there is a disease, right? What were the adverse events, just so we understand it? No, what you expect to have have from uh, COVID. So high fevers, uh, high headaches, uh, diarrheas, things that are affecting uh, you because of COVID. But as I said, it was way less with uh, the treatment than with the placebo. When do you think this can get approved? This is something that FDA's uh, responsibility, so um, EMAs in terms of European authorities, that I can talk about them. What I can say is that we plan to submit as soon as possible. Hopefully, hopefully we will uh, submit before Thanksgiving. Greta Thunberg is joining young climate activists in Glasgow today to demand greater action from world leaders as the first week of COP26 comes to a close. Thunberg has been highly critical of the summit. Phil Black is in Glasgow and he's walking with the protesters. Phil, what are you hearing? What are the activists telling you? Hey, Eleni, lots of noise, lots of passion in central Glasgow. Thousands of people who do not have a lot of faith in the process that is taking place in, in the, the Climate Talk Conference Centre, only a short distance from here. This is an overwhelmingly young crowd. These are the people that are going to be living with, living through the consequences of what is and isn't decided uh, at that conference centre. The conference in its first week has been defined by limited successes, announcements, deals that are heavily qualified, that have weaknesses and caveats, and that do not represent the sort of bold, drastic action that the science says is necessary, and the people who are marching here today really want to see uh, as well. This is only a warm-up. There are thousands of people, as I say, but the really big protests will be taking place here in Glasgow over the weekend. And their purpose is to maintain pressure, to remind those in the negotiating rooms precisely what is at stake. Because although progress has been made, these people and the science says that near enough simply isn't good enough when it comes to avoiding and ensuring the world avoids the worst impacts of climate change. 
Well, Phil, I mean, I guess they're looking at previous COP summits and saying, well, what really happened post those summits? Here we have world leaders patting themselves on the back to some extent because of the aggressive commitments that many of them have actually voiced over the past week or so, and even leading up to COP26. Um, when the, the youth and the protesters behind you clearly say they want more, what exactly do they want to see? Because it's easy to say it's not enough, but you can't just turn off the taps on fossil fuels because that will have a devastating impact on economic growth. Yeah, indeed. I mean, there is that endless tension between the idealism of what these young people want and certain economic realities. But these people are are not interested in half measures. You know, there was a banner here I saw earlier that summed it up pretty well, which just said, stop burning stuff. And that's what they want to see more of. Obviously, we can't just turn it all off tomorrow, but they firmly believe, as do many other activists, analysts, and some of the the high-ambition countries uh, at these talks, they believe that more can be done and more must be done in the near term. We have seen at these talks a lot of countries come in, certainly signalling a change of direction and focus, a willingness to embrace the necessity of net zero ambitions, uh, emissions in the longer term. But what analysts and activists point out regularly is that those long-term ambitions have to be backed up by clear, decisive, credible action in the short term, specifically this decade. You know, we have been told repeatedly, and the science says this, we've got to roughly halve our emissions uh, in the coming 10 years. And if you don't do that, then the long-term goal of hitting uh, carbon neutrality by the middle of the century, all of this in order to contain uh, average global temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius, that simply isn't achievable. That goal slips away. So there will always be an economic argument, certainly in some countries more than others, for progressing slowly and carefully. But the reality is, as we have been told, time is running out. If we don't see more ambition in the near future, we simply won't achieve what is needed to be achieved. And that is what is motivating these people here today. Eleni. Thank you so much, Phil. And stop burning stuff. Simple but absolutely relevant right now. Thank you for that update. All right, these are the stories making headlines around the world. Rebel forces in Ethiopia are gaining in numbers as they rapidly advance towards the capital city, Addis Ababa. They are conflicting reports on how close they actually are. Now, after a year of conflict, nine groups opposing the government say they will form an alliance today at an event in Washington, D.C. David McKenzie joins us now live from Johannesburg. Uh, David, we're hearing the rebel forces are gaining ground towards the capital city. Then you're hearing about an alliance that is forming in Washington, D.C. What is the state of play right now? Eleni, it's a very difficult time for Prime Minister Abe. It's certainly the most uh, critical period, I think, since he took office and this crisis began around a year ago. Uh, the rebel groups or the uh, uh, OLA in the south and east of uh, Addis Ababa and the TDF, the Tigrayan Defense Forces, have moved closer to the capital this week. It is unclear, and I must be specific on this, it is unclear where exactly they are right now because in part of a blockade of information and communications. Uh, The government, for its part, is downplaying the threat, of course, uh, to the capital, though just this week they've reinstated through 
parliament a state of emergency, which gives them broad powers to arrest and detain people without a due process. I must say, right at the moment, the government is giving a briefing uh, with the media, uh, with the attorney general and a member of the prime minister's office. They are again placing this crisis, the blame for it, squarely on the TPLF, the Tigrayan uh, political group that they've been locked in uh, conflict with since last year. That has been their sustained narrative on this. Uh, but there have been repeated criticisms and allegations against the government of widespread atrocities and a blockade uh, to stop humanitarian aid getting to that part of Ethiopia, uh, something they deny. They're calling uh, the reporting on this alarmist, but it certainly is a very challenging period for Abe and his options appear to be narrowing. Eleni? All right, David, thank you very much for that update. Great to see you. Now, the funeral for the late U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell will take place at Washington's National Cathedral today. He died in October from complications from COVID-19. Colin Powell served in several top roles in Republican administrations and was a retired Army general. There's full coverage on CNN from 11 a.m. Eastern Time. And still to come on First Move, Novavax's new hope, a COVID-19 vaccine that could be a game changer for poorer nations. I'll speak to the CEO. And this isn't over yet. The WHO is warning Europe more COVID trouble lies ahead. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Eleni Jokas in Dubai. Now, U.S. stocks set to rise further into record territory after the, re the release of October's better-than-expected job numbers. 531,000 new jobs created last month, about 100,000 more than expected. September's weak numbers were revised higher, too, and unemployment dipped to 4.6%. The new numbers coming just two days after the U.S. Federal Reserve announced plans to begin slowing stimulus due to the stronger jobs picture, as well as fears of higher inflation. Now, inflation concerns are growing at the Bank of England as well, although it surprised investors Thursday by putting off an expected rate hike. Meantime, oil prices are on the rise after OPEC Plus announced that it will boost production only gradually. The White House blasting that decision, saying it imperils the global economic recovery. It wants OPEC Plus to open the taps wider and boost supply. Right, so vaccine maker Novavax reporting a net loss of $322 million as it awaits. Uh, broad approval of its COVID-19 shot. On Thursday, Novavax sought emergency authorization for the vaccine from the WHO and other regulators. Indonesia became the first country to approve the shot earlier this week. Shares right now are down over 10% in pre-market trading. Joining me now is Stanley Irk, the president and CEO of Novavax. So good to have you with us. Look, we mentioned uh, the losses that you've incurred uh, over this quarter, but looking at your R&D expenditure and seeing that you've spent over $400 million uh, in the quarter versus what you did last year, this is clearly about, uh, you know, looking at this uh, vaccine that you're trying to put into the market. And the spending that you've incurred is actually all about trying to get authorization and looking at uh, agreements as well, which you have signed some as well. Does this mean that 
these numbers are as bad as they're going to get? Well, you know, these numbers, what, what the loss reflects, of course, is our investment in uh, this very important vaccine. And so, so as you do clinical trials, which we've just, you know, we've done, been doing uh, pivotal clinical trials in three different countries, and that reflects that, that loss. So I, it, uh, once we start getting revenues, which, which we are now on the verge of doing, given that we've got authorization, uh, the numbers will change dramatically. Okay, so let's look at uh, your vaccine. It's built on older technology. It's also different from Johnson & Johnson, of course, vastly different from mRNA tech as well. Tell me a little bit about the vaccine and whether you think that your formulation is going to help uh, the hesitant to want to get the jab. Well, you know, the data speaks for themselves. We have these clinical trials that we've done show that we have the, the uh, highest efficacy of any vaccine. So we had, in some cases, 100% efficacy against severe, modern severe disease. We showed our efficacy was very high against the variants that you keep hearing about. So we have a great vaccine uh, that is uh, has a very good safety profile. And on top of all that, the stability shows that we can just keep the vaccine uh, at refrigerated temperatures. There's no need to freeze uh, during shipment or, or storage. Yeah. And uh, it's 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 an ideal candidate for global distribution. So in ter- yeah, I would like to find out what your global st- uh, strategy actually is. You are go- now basically going to be competing against other vaccine manufacturers that have been to some extent established in the market right now. Uh, you've already signed some agreements. I know you're looking for authorization. How optimistic are you that you will be able to adequately uh, compete on the global stage? Well, uh, the, the competition is, is uh, there, there are a couple of factors. One is just availability of product. Uh, we have a very uh, robust manu- global manufacturing uh, strategy. We have partnered uh, a long time ago, last year, with a company called the Serum Institute of in- India, uh, and the reason we partnered with them is is for that very reason. They they uh, are the largest vaccine manufacturer and distributor in the entire world. They they uh, routinely manufacture 1.5 billion doses and 65 percent of the world's children get their vaccine uh, on an annual basis. And so so this is the right partnership. Uh, it, we we couldn't as a biotech company get into. Um, you know, the 170 countries that we need to get to and and, uh, Serum can help us do that. I know that you're focusing on emerging markets. You've alluded to the fact that temperatures um, are actually conducive to try and get uh, this vaccine to remote areas. Uh, Given the profile of COVID-19 changing quite dramatically and Pfizer just announcing that they do have a pill that can be taken that dramatically reduces hospitalization if you do contract COVID, how does that change your prognosis on, you know, how quickly you can try and distribute the hundreds and millions of vaccines that you've put in your pipeline? Well, it's it's terrific news that Pfizer has a good pill. Uh, that's always uh, that's always a, a good thing if you can if you can uh, uh, take it after you've gotten sick. But but remember, vaccines prevent uh, illness, and that's what that's the ultimate goal. And so I don't think the pill is going to have much impact on our on our forecast at all. I think it it, it will be a helpful uh, tool in a doctor's kit once somebody gets sick. But the best way is prevention. And so uh, that's, that's what our vaccine is designed to do.
Yeah. So you've already applied to the WHO. Are you looking to work with the FDA? Uh, and what timelines are we looking at here? Sure. So, so we, uh, you may have noticed we have filed with nine different regulatory agencies just within the last two weeks, and that includes the WHO. And so we're, we're, we have global aspirations. We, of course, are working with the FDA very closely. We are, uh, we've just sent them a file of data uh, that, will, that will initiate a meeting with them shortly. And our expectation is that we'll file our full package with the FDA before the end of this year, so soon. So, so, so you did mention that the efficacy, which is great, but in terms of, of issues um, and of side effects, anything you should uh, you know, highlight to us? No, it's, we have a very benign uh, side effect profile, and, uh, and I think that, that is a highlight of our, um, of our vaccine. All right. Thank you very much, Stanley. Good to have you on the show. Much appreciated. Right. The market okay. opens next. Stay with us. All right. So welcome back to First Move. I actually have to turn my comms down. It was so loud. Excitement at the New York Stock Exchange today. U.S. stocks are up and running for the final trading day of the week. And as expected, Wall Street is hitting fresh record highs after the release of October's better than expected jobs report. The major averages all on track to finish the week higher. Take a look at that. It's green across the board. The Nasdaq looking at its 10th straight winning session. Pfizer is soaring in early trading. Uh, the COVID vaccine maker is out with an encouraging data on its experimental COVID antiviral pill. It says the treatment can cut risks of hospitalization and death by almost 90%. Merck, which is developing an antiviral pill of its own, is trading lower on the news. Now, the UK approved emergency use of the Merck pill earlier this week. Right, reopening stocks like airlines and hotels are among the best performers today amid expectations that COVID pills will help boost profits. Let's return to our top business stories. A big rebound for the jobs market in the U.S. 531,000 net new hires in October. That's far above economists' predictions of 450,000. And the employment rate fell last month to 4.6%. Mark Zandi is the chief economist at Moody's Analytics and joins us now. Mark, great to see you. Um, so this number clearly far better than expected, just adding a little bit more optimism that perhaps we're getting closer to a normalization within the jobs market. But again, I'm looking at this overall unemployment rate at 4.6%. It's encouraging, but it's still not good enough. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was a great report. I mean, it shows that the economy still remains very tethered to the pandemic. You know, the Delta wave hit hard back beginning in July, August and September did a lot of damage. Growth slowed. But uh, the Delta wave has been fading over the last four or six weeks and the economy is revving right back up. And that's what we saw in today's jobs numbers. But you're right. We've got a ways to go here. Uh, you know, 4.6 percent unemployment is still well above what I think people will consider to be full employment. So a lot lot more work to do. Hopefully this pandemic continues to wind down and uh, the economy continues to improve. It feels like it should, uh, but uh, we've got to see that happen. Yeah. I mean, and some of the subsectors uh, within the report talking about leisure doing better as well, which again is encouraging. It means people are feeling comfortable to spend, they're going out, um, and importantly, they're leaving their home markets uh, as well. You know, we, the variant issue is obviously still a risk, an unknown risk. Uh, but right now, it seems that things are getting slowly back on track. 
Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, the one of the, uh, I think, uh, most impressive things about today's numbers was the broad-based increase in jobs across, I think, every private sector industry. You mentioned leisure and hospitality. That's where, obviously, we saw some really big gains. But, uh, you know, construction, manufacturing, professional services, healthcare, all added very significantly. So all very encouraging. Really, the only uh, part of the economy that didn't add to jobs was uh, was government. Uh, and that was public education. And that just goes to some measurement issues, uh, you know, related to the timing of schools reopening for in-person learning. So uh, really uh, good job growth uh, pretty much across the board. So let's talk about the politics right now with regards to uh, a bipartisan infrastructure bill that's going to be really important to pump even more money into the economy to focus on various sectors. It's going to cut across so many things. How important do you think this is, firstly, to get a deal as quickly as possible and to put this money to work? Yeah, I think it's important, uh, you know, particularly uh, about this time next year. I mean, this, this legislation hopefully gets passed in the next week or two or three then it becomes impl- uh, starts to be implemented at the start of 2022. And then for it to really kick into gear, it'll, it'll take about until this time next year. But the economy, I think, will need it. And uh, just about the time to get the economy across the finish line back to full employment, you know, back to an unemployment rate that's in the mid threes. Uh, the other important thing about this legislation, though, is about longer term economic growth. It's about, you know, lifting productivity growth. The, the, the increased spending on public infrastructure should make us all more productive and make our economy bigger. And the uh, spending on very social programs should help in terms of labor force participation. We need to get people uh, into the workforce. And this will help do it by, you know, helping with uh, people's child care and elder care, or housing, things that are, you know, keeping people from from taking jobs. And that'll also improve long-term economic growth. So it's not only about uh, getting across the finish line here back to full employment. It's about making sure that our economy is growing uh, more strongly in the longer run. Absolutely. I want to talk about inflation risks here because it seems that inflation is kind of rearing its head. And that, of course, is problematic because then it gives, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve a big dilemma do you then start increasing rates, spook the markets? Do you tame inflation? Or do you say, look, the dollar is the reserve currency of the world and it's going to hold its own, just like it did during the financial crisis in 2008? Yeah, well, in my view, the weaker growth we were getting a few, uh, back in the, in, the, in the fall is related to the Delta pan, uh, wave of the pandemic. And the higher inflation is also related to the Delta wave of the pandemic. Uh, you know, Delta hit the U.S. really hard. It hit the rest of the world, uh, in many parts of the world, much harder, particularly in Asia, particularly in Southeast Asia, where a lot of global supply chains begin. And so because the supply chains have been so badly disrupted by the pandemic, you know, people, you know, Malaysian chip plants shut down. China shuts down its ports because of its uh, zero COVID policy. Uh, that has caused shortages for all kinds of products here, from vehicles to furniture, and that sent prices higher. So if, I, if that diagnosis is correct, as the Delta wave winds down, we are already seeing stronger growth. I would expect supply chains to start ironing themselves out and some of these shortages abating and, and inflationary pressure starting to come down as well. It's not, it's not going to be next month, next quarter, but over the next year, I would expect to see much uh, more moderate inflation. But you're right. If, if I'm wrong and inflation remains very elevated, that, that puts the Federal Reserve in a pretty t- difficult spot. Do I, Absolutely. you know, do I keep rates slow to try to keep the economy strong or do I raise rates to try to uh, weigh against the inflation? It's a pretty tough spot to be in. So, 
And the, another thing that you flagged and Moody's has flagged is you're worried about the housing market and it could be in for a hard landing. Explain how that then changes the outlook and the prognosis of a stronger U.S. economy. Yeah, the housing market, uh, U.S. kind of Alice in Wonderland, lots of things that are just kind of really weird. I mean, for example, we've got this very severe shortage of affordable housing, uh, just not enough homes for, for all the households in America. And, that, and that's a that's a real problem. But the other thing uh, that uh, I'm referring to when I when I think about a hard landing in housing is about house prices. I, I think most Americans realize that you know, housing values have gone skyward. You know, uh, take Phoenix and the Phoenix house prices are up by one third over the past year. And can you imagine that? That, that those prices are very vulnerable uh, when interest rates rise. So as the Fed, Federal Reserve normalizes interest rates, get rates off the zero lower bound, starts raising rates as the economy gets back to normal, that's going to, those higher mortgage rates are going to conflate with the higher house prices, make housing very uh, unaffordable, hurt demand, and we could see some real weakness in, in, in pricing, uh, particularly in those markets that really have gotten juiced up. So that that's a, you know, I don't, I don't think it's going to derail uh, the economy going forward, but it's certainly a risk. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we could see some price declines in some markets that could be, you know, obviously painful for those homeowners in those markets. Yeah. Something we've seen before, so a cautionary tale. Thank you very much, uh, Mark Zandi. Much appreciated for your time. Sure. Right. Meanwhile, the U.S.'s reopening is turning the tide on some of corporate America's biggest pandemic winners. Shares in Peloton, which offers home workouts and equipment, plunging 30 percent this morning. This after it slashed a billion dollars off its full year forecast. Paul LaMonica joins me now. I think we had this conversation um, sort of mid last year. You know, everyone was trying to figure out how they would stay fit and healthy at home. Now everyone's heading back and there's no greater barometer, it seems, than Peloton and its share price. Yeah, Peloton losing about a third of its value this morning, Eleni. It really was shocking how quickly this fad seems to have fallen off. Uh, Really, I think a lot of people that had been working out at home because of COVID are starting to recognize that because of vaccines, because of safety protocols, they can go back to the gym. And you had uh, one of the publicly traded gym companies, Planet Fitness, report some pretty solid results earlier this week, and its stock was up on that. So I think it really does show that maybe people were tired of just working out at home and having some instructor constantly yelling at them to go Peloton at them, and they wanted a little bit more of a real-life social interaction. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and looking at the fact that they are coming under pressure, shocking the market with uh, posting a wider loss than expected. You know, there was always a question about how they would value themselves. Some people say it's just a spinning bike with an iPad on it, and then they kind of pivoted into other um, gym equipment. And then importantly, the subscription-based uh, you know, theme was also quite a vital part of their business model. Is this a more realistic view of what Peloton can achieve in terms of growth rates? Yeah, I think that Peloton, Eleni, is going to face the major challenge going forward of just trying to figure out what the right price point for its equipment is. They did cut prices on some of the uh, exercise bikes. Uh, They do have newer products like a treadmill, although there were some issues uh, regarding uh, safety and uh, you know recall there. You mentioned the app as well for people that maybe want to do workouts but don't want to have pricey uh, exercise equipment in their house. But the big issue, we, we talk about people going back to the gym, 
Also, there is another problem for Peloton, namely that it's not that difficult to make an exercise bike, a rowing machine. You know, it's not like Peloton inventing home workouts. So they have to keep prices competitive yeah. because yeah. there are a lot of other companies with cheaper equipment that oh, works. Uh, yeah. You know? Exactly. Or just uh, um, or disrupt uh, the market. All right, Paul, great to see you. We didn't get to touch on Uber. That was also interesting numbers coming out. Uh, they posted their first uh, profit, uh, uh, profit in a quarter since they launched 10 years ago. So interesting times there as well. Thank you so much, Paul. We're still to come on First Move. And MP Center, once again, hear what region is looking at a difficult winter as COVID-19 cases reach record highs. Details up next. In Europe, a stark warning about the dangerous surge in COVID infections. The World Health Organization says the virus could kill half a million people in Europe and Central Asia by February. Already some countries are reporting record numbers of new COVID cases. Nina Los Santos uh, joins us now from London. Uh, Nina, tell me about the biggest hotspots, the worst places right now that are emerging in Europe. Well, one of the countries that's extremely worried is Germany. Jens Spahn, the German health minister, has just emerged from a two-day meeting with various local health officials of the different parts of Germany to discuss the seriousness of the situation in some parts of Germany where they're seeing rapidly rising levels of infections. That's already meant that people have had to be moved from one part of the country because hospitals are starting to get overwhelmed to other parts of the country where there's lower infection rates that people are they're able to accommodate people in beds. Um, Germany, other countries like Slovakia, Greece, also seeing the spike of infections in the fourth wave that Germany's called massive. Countries like Greece and Slovakia back up to record levels of over 6,000 infections for a few days in a row. And this is what is really worrying people. Up in the Baltics, Latvia's had to declare a state of emergency. And uh, that comes with all the COVID restrictions that you can imagine we've seen uh, since the start of the pandemic. Even the Netherlands is starting to consider reintroducing face masks and so on and so so forth. If you look at the numbers, they appear to be, according to the WHO, rising all over this region. And it's now responsible for 1.8 million new cases of COVID just last week. That's about nearly 60% of the new world total of recent fresh infections of the coronavirus. So you can see why authorities are starting to become concerned. Why is this happening? Well, the WHO says it's because not enough people are getting vaccinated in some parts of Europe. The coverage isn't complete. And also, People have been relaxing the rules, but they're spending an awful lot more time indoors these days. And that means that there's no room for being complacent about preventing infection. Eleni? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, you, you mentioned exactly what the big issue is here. It's vaccine hesitancy in some of these countries that are experiencing a spike in cases. And I guess the question is, are we heading towards another unmanageable situation? And is there a concern about new variants emerging? Because that has always been the risk. Well, yeah, exactly. This has been the theory that epidemiologists have been talking about for the last couple of years. In fact, since vaccines were in their infancy for COVID-19, even before they'd been rolled out, they said it's imperative that everybody, or at least as many people as possible, get vaccinated against this virus so it can't keep circulating in parts of the population that haven't yet been vaccinated to then mutate and evade the current vaccines. Um, 
reinfect people in this part of the world. Yes, that's something uh, obviously health authorities are very, very concerned about. They're still saying among these fresh infection waves that the Delta variant appears to be uh, particularly dominant. But they're also worried about the potential for a twindemic, as they put it, which is the flu season cropping up right now at the same time as COVID-19 starts its fourth wave. Last year, obviously, people were social distancing, they were wearing masks, so there wasn't this uh, confluence of the two diseases at once, but they're worried now with, of course, the relaxation of those rules that this could happen this year. Eleni? Nina Dos Santos, thank you very much for that update. All right, we head to Mexico now, where the rising cost of fuel is bringing hardship to gas consumers, and the president is taking controversial action to try and control those prices. CNN's Rafael Romo has those details. On a recent morning in Mexico City, people lined up for what has long been a monthly ritual filling up their LP gas tanks. Like many Mexicans, Alejandra Navarrete complains about how expensive LP gas has become. It affects all of us Mexicans. LP gas is very expensive, but we still need to buy it, she says. I'm spending twice as much as before, this man says. How far is this going to go, this woman wonders. According to figures by the Mexican government, LP gas increased by more than 20% from September of 2020 to the same month this year. By comparison, inflation went up by 6%. In fact, analysts with the country's central bank say a typical price increases observed in some products may be explained by global factors, including the price hike in this fuel. President Andrés Manuel López Obrador acknowledged over the summer the price of LP gas has risen well above inflation, which breaks a campaign promise. His solution has been controversial. The president created Gas Bienestar, or Welfare Gas, a new LP gas company under Pemex, Mexico's government-run oil company. He says there are only five big companies that supply LP gas to almost half the country, companies that, according to the president, operate with very high profit margins. But analysts say the problem is not lack of competition, but a high global demand that has caused prices to spike everywhere. All the increases are consequence, a direct consequence of the global uh, situation with supply and demand. At the end of August, the Mexican government announced with great fanfare the first gas bienestar trucks had begun delivering the fuel in a lower middle class neighborhood in Mexico City. But as if to prove President López Obrador wrong, LP gas sold by the government's company went up 11 percent in its first month of operation, even higher than some private providers. And the problem is the ripple effect that high LP gas prices are having throughout the Mexican economy, even in staples like tortillas. Back at the LP Gas Tank Exchange Depot, Alejandra Navarrete hopes the president's idea can make a difference, but has a wait-and-see attitude. There's a lot of talk, but no results, she says. As she puts the full tank in her car to go back home, she says all she hopes is that next month's trip for a refill won't leave her again with an empty pocket. Rafael Romo, CNN, Mexico City. More first move right after this break. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move. Now, air quality in New Delhi has dropped to hazardous levels on Friday morning after the first day of Diwali celebrations, the Hindu festival of lights. As Christy Lou Stout reports, India is making up for a quiet festival in 2020. Sounds of praying and chanting as India celebrates Diwali, the festival of lights amid the coronavirus pandemic. This Diwali, as you see, is a much uh, joyous Last year we could not celebrate Diwali because of the COVID, but this year uh, again the crowd is back on the street. We are buying crackers for our kids. Uh, we do hope to uh, enjoy the festival as we used to enjoy pre-COVID. After a quiet Diwali in 2020 because of the COVID-19 pandemic, this year Indians are celebrating in full force, undeterred by the virus and the deadly second wave that gripped the country earlier this year. Markets were crowded as people stepped out to buy fireworks, flowers and new clothes ahead of the festival. But with poor air quality in the capital, New Delhi, and elsewhere, some states and territories ban firecrackers to curb air pollution. And families mark the day by lighting earthen lamps and making colorful rangolis, gathering together after being apart due to the pandemic. In Kolkata, the streets were lit up with colored lights as Hindus celebrated both Diwali and Kali Puja, marking the goddess Kali's victory over evil. And in Punjab, people gathered at the illuminated Golden Temple in Amritsar to pray and watch the fireworks. I'm feeling very happy after witnessing the fireworks here on Diwali. It's a heavenly view. I pray that peace should prevail in the world. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi celebrated Diwali with troops near the country's border in Kashmir, paying tribute to fallen soldiers. And although the shadow of the coronavirus pandemic has not yet lifted, Indians are praying this Diwali for better times ahead. It feels very good because people have started stepping out. People who were scared earlier due to corona have stepped out now for shopping. It's very good. This Diwali is much better than last year. Christy Lustow, CNN. And finally, on First Move, fancy owning an iconic piece of Las Vegas, that's if you have deep pockets. MGM Resorts is putting the Mirage Resort and Casino up for sale after owning it for 21 years. The company has about a dozen properties in the city and said we have enough of Las Vegas. No word yet on any buyer or price. That's it for the show. I'm Eleni Jokas in Dubai. Becky Anderson is up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.